Like smoking Joe Frazier, the Hellraiser. Raising hell with the flavor. Terrorize the jam like troops in Pakistan. Swinging through your town like your neighborhood Spider-Man. So all tick-tock and keep ticking. Will I get you flipping off the shit I'm kicking? In 1992, James Carville famously said, It's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. Carville said this when he was working as the campaign manager for Bill Clinton in his race against then-reigning President George H.W. Bush. Carville made this phrase, it's the economy, stupid, the central slogan of his campaign strategy to get Clinton elected as president. And it worked. And this phrase resonated in the popular consciousness so much that it has become, even today, a part of everyday political discourse. As I see it, there are two critical components of this phrase. Let's analyze them in turn. The first part of the phrase goes, it's the economy. What did Carville mean by this? He meant that in order to get elected, Clinton should throw all of his weight behind economic issues. Carville had the ingenious insight that what really motivated voters was essentially money. While voters may have cared to some degree about other issues, like gun control and abortion and foreign policy, what really mattered to them was the economy. That is, better jobs, better wages, better health care, better retirement funds, and so forth. The second part of this phrase is the word stupid. Why did Carville insert stupid at the end of his expression? Why not just say, it's the economy? or it's the economy that matters. In fact, it's the stupid part of the phrase which is what makes it so brilliant. James Carville inserted the word stupid at the end, I believe, because he recognized that we, as humans, have a tendency to overcomplicate things. We have a tendency to convince ourselves that what is bothering us is something different from that which is staring us right in the face. But there's another reason as well, an even more profound reason, why Carville added this word, stupid. It is that we tend to ignore or suppress our actual problems and our actual threats in favor of more esoteric or perhaps more trivial concerns. These two reasons are interrelated. Carville wants to say that we are stupid, first, because we ignore the obvious causes of our dissatisfaction, and second, because we attribute our dissatisfaction to the wrong causes. Notice what Carville felt his campaign was at risk of overlooking in 1992, the economy. The economy. We can now better understand why Carville threw in the word stupid at the end. Because what could be more critical to anyone than the economy? The economy is what controls our most basic human needs, food, shelter, medicine. Before the human mind can even grapple with more sophisticated issues, like say, foreign policy, or environmental regulations, it needs to feel sated. The mind needs to know that it is safe, well-fed, cared for, and loved. Then, and only then, can it begin to concern itself with other political issues. And so, this is why Carville said it's the economy stupid. Because you really would have to be stupid to believe that the importance a human places on his own wellness and that of his family would ever be superseded by any other political or non-political issue. And yet, 
Carville also wisely recognized that we mistake what is really irritating us and upsetting us all the time. Or put another way, we are often stupid. You are listening to The Shrift, Life Tip 21, First Kings 18. When he's looking for a suit and tie rap that's cleaner than a boss soap, and I'm the dirtiest thing in sight. Matter of fact, bring out the girls and let's have a mud fight. The best of tech in that, the best of tech in that, the best of tech in that. When Carville made this observation in 1992, he, perhaps without realizing it, was drawing a distinction between cause and symptom. Indeed, millions of voters would not have named the economy as their number one concern. Instead, these voters were outraged about other non-economic issues like, say, abortion rights or the perceived decline in family values and the personal flaws of the candidates Clinton and Bush Sr. Yet, at least as I interpret it, Carville perceived that this outrage at non-economic issues was not cause, but rather symptom. People, at their core, were outraged about the economy, but they, for a variety of reasons not worth going into at this point, unconsciously deflected this anger elsewhere. Cause, the economy, and symptom, some other issue, were not aligned. We have a tendency, I would suggest, to fall into the trap of thinking that cause and symptom are one and the same. When we have a fever, for example, we believe that the fever is the sickness. But of course, the fever is just the symptom. The cause of the fever is something else entirely, usually a virus inside of our bodies. If we don't stop to think about it, we might view the fever as our enemy when in fact, the fever is actually what is working to heal us. The fever is a very elementary example, but it can get more complicated. Sometimes, symptom and cause are miles and miles apart, so removed from one another that we focus all of our attention on treating the symptom and remain ignorant as to what the cause is of this symptom. In fact, the separation between cause and symptom arises most poignantly in the sphere of mental health. The brain has very strange ways of lashing out and communicating to you that something is wrong. With other body parts, cause and symptom, while not necessarily identical, are not so estranged from each other. When you are hungry, for example, your brain will send you hunger signals so that you are motivated to eat. But these signals are just the symptoms of hunger. The cause is a, de is a deficit of calories in your body, which you cannot perceive. And then when you do eat, your brain sends you signals of satiation. But these are just the symptoms of satiation. The cause is that now you have enough caloric energy in your body once more. Yet this cause is inaccessible to your senses. However, when the mind is unhappy, the signals it gives you, the symptoms, might get lost in translation, so to speak. 
In psychology, there is more or less a consensus that stress is one of the causes, if not the cause, of mental disorders like depression, OCD, generalized anxiety, bipolar disorder, and anorexia, to name just a few. But you would have to be a genius, however, to realize this linkage on your own. One of the main symptoms of depression, for example, is a loss of pleasure in activities which once gave you joy. Yet, many people make the mistake of thinking that depression is this loss of pleasure or loss of motivation. But in fact, these are just symptoms and signals your brain is sending you to cry out to you that something is wrong. What is wrong? Stress. For an array of reasons which we cannot go into, you have overtaxed your body and your spirit, emotionally, biologically, environmentally. A depressed person might think, if only I could figure out a way to have motivation again or to find joy in my hobbies again. But this reaction is to treat symptom and not cause. To this reaction, James Carville would respond, it's stress, stupid. Depression is not your problem. Stress, the cause of the depression, is the problem. That is what you should treat. Now, if you think about it, there is a connection between the symptoms of depression and the cause, stress, but it's not so easy to discern this connection. Let me try. Depression forces people to slow down, to stay home, to hibernate, as these are all strategies to remove the overload of adrenaline and cortisol from your system. It is a crude and often counterproductive strategy, to be sure, but we don't get to decide how our brain sends us signals or whether we like the signals or not. Carl Jung was born in Switzerland in 1875. He became interested in psychiatry as a medical student. Upon graduating in 1900, Jung entered the nascent world of psychology, led then by Sigmund Freud. Jung became an avid follower of Freud's theories of psychoanalysis, and the two eventually met in Vienna in 1907. Freud began to see the brilliant Jung as his protege and heir apparent. Yet, the, re the relationship would end in rupture around 1912. While Jung was immeasurably influenced by Freud, he nevertheless began to differ with some of the core principles of Freud's psychology. Specifically, Jung believed that patients should not be treated by going deep into their childhood pasts. Rather, they should be treated by examining their present condition and looking toward their future. Unlike Freud, Jung was willing to attribute a patient's present neuroses and anxieties to problems the patient was experiencing, not in childhood trauma or in childhood memories, but in his or her current life. And Jung understood that neuroses and anxieties are often signals and symptoms from the brain, which actually distract from the core issue. Jung taught that depression and phobias and neuroses should actually be seen from an optimistic perspective. He believed that these difficulties are clues that your psyche is wrestling with drastic life changes, what we might call stress, and preparing itself for a new life phase. Jung argued that, for example, men often experience depression around age 40 and women in their late 30s, as this is when a new life phase tends to begin for them as they become adults and start raising a family. Jung would also write that Quote, 
depressions always have to be understood teleologically, unquote. Teleology is the theory that, essentially, there is an end, purpose, or goal behind the procession of events. Put crudely, teleology means that what happens happens for a reason, but that this reason will only later become apparent. In a way, then, our brains are smarter than we are. They are the ones steering the ship, leading us toward our desired destination, and what we may perceive in the moment as unpleasantness is actually just a part of the master plan of the captain of our ship, our mind. That being said, I'd strongly suggest that you don't piss off the captain. The Haftarah for this week for the Parsha of Kitisa comes once again from the Book of Kings. The Haftarah throws us into a chaotic and dark time in the history of Israel. Speaking of captains, the reading tells the story of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Ahab's people are wavering between whether they should worship the Hebrew god or the pagan god known as Baal. Ahab is weak and controlled by his wife Jezebel. Jezebel is a pagan and she is murderous, having executed dozens of prophets who tried to get the Hebrew people to pray to the monotheistic god Hashem instead of to Baal. The hero of this episode is the prophet Elijah, who goes to Ahab's kingdom to quell the nation's lunge into paganism. The story culminates when Elijah gathers worshippers of Hashem and worshippers of Baal together at Mount Carmel. Elijah initiates a classic litmus test of whose god is the real god and whose is the fraud. Elijah has each group offer up a sacrifice on the altar. Neither group is allowed to put fire onto the altar, and Elijah even douses the altar to Hashem with water. Nevertheless, at the end of the dramatic test, it is the altar to Hashem which magically lights up in flames, whereas the altar to Baal does not even kindle or spark. Through this test, Elijah shows Baal to be a fraudulent god and Hashem to be the true god. At this point, you probably have observed that none of this story seems to have anything to do with our hitherto discussion. However, to understand the connection, we only need to read the first two verses of the chapter, chapter 18, to this tumultuous story. These verses read, quote, And it came to pass, after many days, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the land. And the famine was terrible in Samaria." Unquote. The famine was terrible in Samaria. In short, the backdrop of the story, the conditions, are drought and famine. People are starving. People are thirsty. People are miserable. Why does the Torah emphasize these conditions at the outset of the story? Because, I would argue, the conditions explain why Ahab's kingdom has embraced paganism and anarchy. But paganism and the turn away from Hashem are only symptoms of deeper, more fundamental issues, namely the drought and the famine. Or, as James Carver would say, it's the economy, stupid. I believe, then, that we have a responsibility to find out what's really bothering us. And my theory is that, like Carver emphasized, 
It is when our most basic needs are threatened that our minds begin to react in very strange ways as they try to steady the ship. But what are our most basic needs? Again, it's the economy, stupid. What we need most is to feel safe, safe from physical, financial, and emotional harm. When we go to bed in the evening, we feel, for a moment, as though all of our tasks are completed, as though we can finally relax and let go, as though we are safe and secure. Ideally, we should feel this way all the time. But the modern world is set up so that we hardly ever feel this way. Indeed, quite the contrary. And if you go through your day never feeling like a baby snuggled up in bed, I believe that your brain will start to go into survival mode. For me, the antithesis of being safe in bed under the covers, how we should be, is to be out in a car. Humans were not meant to drive cars. When you go for a drive, you are first surrounded by loud noises, honking, screeching, and blaring sirens. Then you are stuck in an awkward position inside this miniaturized box of metal. But this is just the beginning. You are threatened, first, physically. Hundreds, if not thousands of other cars drive by you at rapid speeds. One slip up could cost you your leg or your life. While you may feel safe when you're driving, your unconscious, which only knows the primitive pre-technological world, may perceive the situation much differently. Second, you are threatened economically. You could get stopped by the police and pay an enormous fine, or you could damage your car or someone else's and lose thousands of dollars. Your mind must also grapple with the problem of parking and the punishing fines which you might incur for illegally leaving your car somewhere unknowingly. And third, you are threatened socially, because when you drive a car, you often play Russian roulette with time not knowing if there will be a traffic jam, or if you will get lost, or if your car will break down. Your brain must wrestle with the ever-present threat of running late and of thereby damaging your social and professional relationships. Today, because we live in the modern world, we have just come to accept cars and airports and smartphones and computers and electric lights as normal, as just part of life. But I'm not so sure our unconscious would agree. The historian Jacques Barzun makes this point in his book, From Dawn to Decadence, 1500 to the Present, 500 Years of Western Cultural Life. In this book, Barzun discusses how, when trains were first invented, the human psyche was forever traumatized due to the high speed at which trains travel. In the year 1830, English passengers boarded one of the first ever trains in order to travel across the countryside at a breakneck speed of 25 miles per hour. About halfway, the train needed to stop to refill the engine with water. It was then that the first railroad accident in human history occurred. A man named William Huskisson got out of the train along with a crowd of people, just to observe. Amid exclamations of wonder and delight, another train began to approach from the opposite direction. The other passengers were successfully able to get back into the train, but Huskisson would not have the same luck. Confused by the cry of, get in, get in, Huskisson didn't make it and was hit by the oncoming train, dying shortly thereafter. 
Huskisson's death marked the first railroad casualty in the history of our species, but not the last. Barzun captures the magnitude of this moment in the following quote. The accident is charged with a special meaning. From then on, human beings have had to sharpen their reflexes under the threat of moving objects. It has been a continual re-education of the nervous system as ever new warnings by sight and sound command the body to halt or step in the safe direction. The eye must gauge speed, the ear guess the nearness of the unseen. And besides sheer survival, the daily business of life calls for taking in and responding to an ever-enlarging array of lights, beeps, buzzes, and insistent rings." Unquote. Your psyche does not know what year it is or what it means to Google something, but your psyche is extremely adept at discerning when you are physically, emotionally, and economically threatened. So, my life tip would be for you to learn to hate your car. Indeed, opting to stay in and order a pizza rather than driving to a swanky restaurant downtown on a Saturday night could end up sparing you a lot of unnecessary stress. It could also save you thousands of dollars in psychological treatment in the future. By then, your conscious mind will have long forgotten about the nerve-wracking trip into the city that evening but your unconscious might still be coming to terms with the threat to life, limb, and purse which it experienced. Two